Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about why I'm calling Joe Biden the tapioca candidate. I also wrote about how values form our decisions on reacting to the coronavirus and not science, as you hear so many politicians say. And then finally, in the newsletter this week, I wrote about government consent, legitimacy, and how those two things are starting to become issues as part of the broader response to the coronavirus. So if you want to, if that interests you, or you want to check it out, uh, you can, after the show, or you know, even now, and then you can go to the show notes and get all of that in your email inbox by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link. There's a link to that into the show notes as well, and then you can see all the columns that I've just mentioned in the show notes as well. And then finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help other listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes lists and algorithms, and I look forward to hearing from you guys in those reviews. This week's show is jammed packed. I missed last week's episode because a derecho, which is a very powerful storm front, blew through my neighborhood knocking out of power. So if you don't have electricity, you're not going to have a podcast. The electricity is back this week, and so am I. So this week, I'm going to go through Joe Biden and the latest developments in his sexual assault allegations involving Tara Reid, and then I'm going to end on that section talking about how Trump can use them. It is somewhat conventional wisdom right now that because Donald Trump has been so credibly accused in other situations that he cannot use this accusation in the upcoming election. I believe that is wrong, and not just for him to hit Biden, but there actually is a specific way he can do so. Then I'm going to move into a discussion of Amon Arbery. He was a black man who was killed by three armed white men. You may have seen the viral video footage that went up either on social media or on cable news. It is a large story, and I'm going to go through some of the facts in that case and talk through what needs to happen there. And then finally, I'm going to wrap up with the latest developments in the coronavirus. Like I said, this week it's all jam-packed, got a lot to cover, but before we hit all of that, I wanted to say a quick thing as we let off here about the hottest debate that I'm seeing on social media, and I don't really mean Twitter this time, but so much, but really more on what I'm seeing on Facebook and Instagram and other places where people are talking about things happening in their day-to-day lives, and that is the debate over Costco and their requirements to wear face masks before going into their stores. So if you hadn't heard, over the past couple of weeks, Costco, the the major retailer, competes with Sam Club and other big box retailers like that. They started requiring requiring customers to wear face masks before entering the store. So this has caused a big disruption among people who want to go and shop at Costco, but don't want to wear a mask and certainly don't want to be forced to wear a mask before going in there. And they're saying, you know, you're seeing these things happen on social media. So people are saying they're great. You're going to boycott or they're going to cancel their membership. 
because Costco is one of those places where you have to have a membership before you can shop there. So that is what they're saying. And that's all fine. They can they can quit, and Costco can also require them to wear a face mask. There are, I mean, what everybody, you're seeing people say is that their rights are somehow being violated in all of this, and that's just untrue. There are no rights being violated in this. The analogy that I've used with people to explain how this works is that it's like, you're going over to a neighbor or a friend's house, and when you get there, you walk through the door, and they ask you to take off your shoes at the door and leave them right there next to the welcome mat. It's just a thing that they like because they don't want people tracking dirt through their house on their carpet or hardwood floor. Now, can you refuse that request? Certainly. You absolutely can refuse that request. But that just means you're being a very rude guest. And your friend or your neighbor can say, well, if you're not going to do that, then why don't you just leave? Because if you're that much of a hassle on this request, we don't want to deal with you on anything else. So it's their house and their rules. And that's a similar thing here. I see some people say something like, you know, Costco is a publicly traded company, so that means I have rights here. And that's not True, Costco is still, even though they are a public company on the public markets, they are still a private business, and this is they can have these rules. They can require you to go in and wear clothes if you're going to go into the store. They, if you walk in naked, they can absolutely kick you out of the store for not wearing clothing. And they can do the same with the face mask here. That is how you should think about and analogize this thing. The face mask is another form of clothing that if some stores want you to wear, they can, in fact, do so. Now, as is it wildly out of place and what you would expect in America? Yes, that that is absolutely true. That is not something typical that you would have expected to see in America just three to four months ago. That's not something anyone would have really expected, except if you were on sort of the outlier phase where people were already buying masks at that time. And the reason that they can do this, and they can do this very comfortably, is because these companies face liability challenges. So if they have no mask on anyone in the store, on either employees or other customers, they face a liability for if someone gets the virus in their store due to the fact that no one was wearing masks, they will get sued by the person who gets sick there. They will figure out that they got it there, and they will sue Costco for not taking measures to make the shopping experience there at Costco more safe. And you may say, well, people are taking on a certain level of liability themselves by walking out in the public. And that's true. But even with that, stores have a duty to keep their places safe from these sorts of situations. And so Costco doesn't want to get sued. That is one of their main fears here. I guarantee you that is one of the things going through their heads. They mainly, the first thing they have to protect is their employees. So they're going to make sure that they're cleaning and they're wearing masks. And the next thing they want to protect are customers because if people start getting the virus in a given Costco store, nobody is going to go there and shop. So it becomes a massive liability, not just as a lawsuit, but also as far as getting future customers. You do not want to be the store that's a, that becomes a hotspot for the coronavirus. The second thing that's sort of working its way through here, apart from all these other people, is that some states do have what's called anti-mask laws. And so some companies are having to thread the needle on legal liability on the other side of this because anti-mask laws first came into place in the 60s, 70s, and I think even 80s, some, some of them. But anyway, it was a 
it, would, it was an effort in order to stop the flow of the Ku Klux Klan from spreading. They wanted to make it harder for these groups to either demonstrate and demonstrate with masks on. If you were going to demonstrate in a white supremacist organization, you were going to have to do it without a mask on. And if you didn't have your mask on, people didn't want to associate themselves with that organization, so it made it harder for it to spread. So a lot of these states have anti-mask laws on the book for good reason, but because that was the focus of those laws, I think you're going to see them either just flat out not get enforced where the governors, I I think Virginia was one of them, where the governor just said straight up that they weren't going to enforce any of their anti-mask laws, or you're going to see some amendments or even a full-on repeal where people may amend these laws to say, well, in the middle of a pandemic, this does not apply. So that's the other side of this, where the companies are having to work through a sort of an actual criminal liability thing where they don't want to run into this. Now, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, the odds of those anti-mask laws actually getting enforced are very, very low unless you just have a state that does not want people to wear masks at all, and they use that as a pretext to prevent anyone from wearing a mask. And I think in that case, you could see a lawsuit in the other way where you're, that law could get struck down because you're in the middle of a pandemic and people want to feel safe and secure in those situations. So the 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 real big 30,000-foot thing here is that no one is having their rights violated. You cannot point to a single constitutional right of yours that is being violated. And so anyone that just says anything like that is just totally wrong. This is completely legal for these companies to do. They have had the ability to do this for a very long time. If you don't like that, you don't have to wear one unless you're under a state-mandated order to wear a mask when you go out. And I'm not aware of any that have that unless you're under direct order, and those are usually pretty narrow. But in any event, you don't have to wear one, but you can get refused service at a place because you're not wearing one because you, as a person not wearing a mask, have more liability for that company than the person not wearing the mask. So most other customers that I've seen and most people that I've seen understand this fact. And so if you're one of those that are just refusing to see the point of this and why companies are doing this, you aren't worth the price for that company because the liability is too high and the risk is too high for this company to let you go into the building. So that's all I've got to say on that. I'm going to take a quick break here, and then when we get back, we're going to start in on Joe Biden and the sexual assault allegations with Tara Reid. So Joe Biden stands accused, legitimately now, of sexually assaulting Tara Reid. Now, there was plenty of, not so much proof, but a corroboration that she had been saying this for some time, than many of these other Me Too allegations that we've seen in the past. So, as a quick reminder, Tara Reid is a former Senate staffer to Joe Biden when he was in the Senate in the early 90s, and she accuses him of sexually assaulting her in 1993. When this first story first broke, it was mostly in the Bernie Sanders side of the Democratic Party where they were talking about this. And it began as a he said, she said kind of allegation, mainly because you just had her and there were no other people who were backing her up. So since that has come out and you've seen journalists actually try to corroborate what happened, we now have 
and I haven't seen an exact count here, but I know it's somewhere between four to six friends, family, and neighbors who all have said she told them this happened to her at some point in the past. And some of them even say that she told them about this at the time. So we have four to six people around her who are all agreeing that she said this happened to her. So it's not just her. The second thing that came up, and I believe I talked about this two weeks ago, but there's a Larry King tape from 1993, and it's a segment where Tara Reid's mother calls into the show and asks what should a Senate or a congressional staffer do if they're being mistreated in a given situation other than go to the press because there were no internal mechanisms or good working mechanisms at the time for a person to make a complaint about their representative or senator. And so she asked this to Larry King's uh, show, and he then dropped off the call after that. So that's a good question, and then went and talked on it with the panel. Tara Reid said that this was her mother. So she confirmed this call both happened, that was her mother on there. So this gives us an on-tape element here that confirms that something had happened to her at this time, and her mother knew about it. The latest thing is a 1996 court document. It was part of the the divorce filings between her Tara Reid and her ex-husband. And one of those court documents, she told her husband that she was sexually assaulted by someone in in Biden's office. It wasn't it, it didn't say who did it or anything like that. It just said that she had been sexually assaulted while a staffer in her time as a Senate staffer in Biden's office. So that gives us a court filing from 96. That gives us the Larry King tape from 93. And we have friends, family, and neighbors all corroborating that she has been saying this for some time. So that means, just on its face, that this is not some story out of the blue where someone is accusing Biden. It is someone who has known about this for some time and is now bringing this to the fray. Now, Diane Feinstein, the senator out of California, she just has basically given up any any attempt to defend Biden on this part because, and just said, you know, why did she bring it? Why is she bringing it up now? Why didn't she bring it up earlier? And you know, that's a very common thing that comes up with the Me Too stuff. You know, why didn't they bring it up? And there's generally always a reason why you can point to that. Usually, it's because there is an incapacity of the woman to actually come forward and get anything to happen. So I think that you can point to legitimate reasons why she wouldn't have come forward because we have, in so many other instances where it was either, you know, Matt Lauer or Harvey Weinstein or anybody else, there was always a reason someone did not come forward earlier. It was out of some fear. And in, in this case, Reed explicitly says that she was afraid at some point. So there are explanations that you can point to that show why Reed did not come forward earlier than she did. So you have many, many layers here of cooperation that Reed was has been saying this for decades. Now, again, she doesn't say in all these who did it or what exactly happened, but there is plenty of evidence here that she has a continuous story that never changes. And so, you know, is, is does this mean that it's true? Ultimately, I, I don't know the answer to that. And, and really, unless you have some just direct evidence at the time, there's no real thing other that you can prove here other than it's just a he said, she said. 
But given all of that, there is a clear double standard happening here in the media coverage because they took so long to get up to speed on this story when you compare it to the Kavanaugh allegation or really any other story that happened in that Me Too era where stuff was coming out pretty much every single day. So there is that double standard here. The media is finally beginning to cover more here. They're not really going out of their way to cover it. You're seeing a lot of networks like CNN and MSNBC, they're covering it at arm's length. They haven't brought Reed on. The only place that she has given this testimony is to Megyn Kelly on her Instagram slash YouTube channel that she's doing some of these big time interviews. So that is the only place that's done it. She's talked about going on Fox, but turned down interviews from going there in the end. And none of these other networks at this time have brought her on. And from the last, I believe this was the New York Times that said this, but according to their, their what they know from her, that she is not receiving any requests from these news organizations to come on to their networks and talk about what is happening. So that is a very clear double standard because we are six months away from an election and this is a major revelation. The irony about all of this is that had they simply just gone forward and hit this and reported it at the time, they could have gotten it out of the way sooner. By refusing to to cover this, they're allowing this story to drag out even longer. So, That is one of the interesting political dynamics here is that because the media has chosen not to cover this, it's allowing it to last longer, and it means it could last into the summer, depending on what more new revelations come out. So this could be one of those stories that is a pain for Joe Biden going forward. And if you see any other women decide to come forward and accuse him of anything, and we already know that he has all these other women who have said that they didn't like how he either touched or sniffed their hair or hugged them, and just you know all the stuff that he does, if any one of them amps up one of their accusations, this could get interesting really quick. So that's where we stand on that one. The interesting thing here is how does Donald Trump decide to use this and how does his campaign decide to use this in attacking Biden? Because because Trump does have a distinct need to lower Joe Biden's favorability, and there is some evidence that this is lowering Biden's favorability because he had pretty decent numbers before this story came out, and the more it has come out, the less people like him. Biden has this really interesting aspect where... The less people see him, sort of Trump-like in this way, the less people see him, the more they like him because you're thinking more of what he could be. And the moment you put him up to a mic, everything falls apart. So in a weird way, this virus is really helping him out because his campaign can just hide him, especially in these these video and live streams that he's doing where they're just horrible and no one is bothering to watch at all. I mean, he's had Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton endorse him on these sorts of things and no one has cared at all. That's partly because of the virus that is swamping everything out, but it's also because he's just not not, not dynamic on this. In my column, I called him the tapioca candidate. He's just, there's nothing there except for what you might think he could be. So that means Trump is going to have to attack him and bring him out into the open to answer more of these allegations. And conventional wisdom 
at least from what I've seen, both on the right and the left, is that Trump can't do this because he's been credibly accused by all these women. He has the Stormy Daniels thing. He has all his lewd comments. And that's true. He does have those. That's why I don't believe Trump should just straight up in his campaign will attack this straight on, just calling Biden awful on this. And I think you've kind of seen Trump back away from this himself, where he's even, weirdly enough, coming to Biden's defense. But I actually think that's smart, because there's a way Trump can use this to attack Biden. And so the first thing you have to do is he has to blast Biden's standards on this. So Biden has written, spoken in a lot of different places. The Washington Post, I believe, is the most prominent place where this has come out, where Biden said that had any allegation like this come out against a person like Kavanaugh with all this different cooperation and all these people saying this, that that person should be considered guilty at that point, and they should be forced to answer for what they've done, and we should believe the woman in that case. That's what he said during the Kavanaugh hearings. The second part of that is Biden has praised his what a policy that happened during the Obama administration where Title IX standards were tightened up a lot and it stripped a lot of people who were accused in that system of sexual assault of their rights. So you didn't have things like the right to a lawyer, you didn't have the right to confront your accused, bringing in evidence was hard. It was just basically a, a, a sham court that people are sent through in the college system while being accused of a crime. And so this made Title IX sexual assault allegations basically just a a one-time zero-tolerance deal where if you were accused, you were immediately kicked out and you had no rights to appeal, no rights at all because you weren't being heard before a judge, you were being heard before a tribunal of the university. And so these conservatives had blasted this for a while as just blatant due process violations. And But the, the Biden campaign has and praise these policies. In fact, they've attacked the Trump administration for trying to correct some of this and restore due process rights here. So between what Biden said about Kavanaugh and what he's done with this Title IX thing where he denied due process to everyone, and in his own personal case here, he's asking for that thing. He's asking for people to assume that he is innocent. If you use Biden's own standards, you he's immediately stripped of all his his defenses here, and he immediately stands guilty. And so what you have to do first is not hold him to the facts of the Tara Reid allegation. You have to hold him to the standards that he has set and said everyone else needs to have applied to them, except for him in this situation. Then, on the step two that you do, is you don't point to, you point out that you don't know the truth of this situation with Tara Reid. You say that you're willing to listen and you're willing to give Biden due process because you know the media has mistreated you. So you do what Trump has done so far, where he said, you know, he believes Biden. He's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt here because it's not something that he has given. And I think that is a smart move on Trump's part because it puts Biden in this position where he's being held against his own standards. And then what you do after that is you point out how Biden's Title IX throws out not just, if if Biden was in college and he would have this applied to him, he would get tossed out. And that wouldn't just apply to him. These rules really apply more to black men in a college setting. Because we've seen statistics come out that the people who are most affected by these Title IX standards where due process gets thrown out are black men. 
So if you're Trump, you point this out and you point out that Biden is willing to take away your rights in this setting, but that he wants it here. And that when you combine that with what Trump has also done with the First Step Act of getting rid and loosening up the the sentences of people with with um, low level type offenses, usually marijuana and other things, and shortening up the sentences that these people are facing, you get this interesting situation here where Joe Biden, who likes to claim that he stands for criminal justice reform and he stands with black Americans, that he is stripping due process from them in a, in a way that is directly affecting them, and that also he's opposed repeal, and he's directly across that, and that he's wanting another standard for himself in this situation. So it provides this bright line that you can draw that shows a difference between Biden and Trump. You effectively make Biden's strength a weakness by pointing out that he is the one stripping due process rights from people in a criminal context. So this this kind of this kind of hit with Biden, you might think that it might not work, but it actually a form of it did work early on last summer in the debates when Kamala Harris went after Joe Biden on the topic of busing. Now, this was a planned hit, and she had absolutely nowhere to go after it. She didn't know how to pivot, and she was a bad candidate, and she didn't know what to do after hitting him with it. But it did hit Biden pretty hard in the polls because it showed that he worked with segregationists in the Senate. Now, I thought that it was an overblown attack and that it wouldn't work in the end just because it literally made no sense. You cannot paint Joe Biden's a lot of things. You can't paint him as a segregationist. But this here, it fits much more closely with his alignment with other very strong on crime measures that have tended to throw more black people in jail than white. So you have these things here that he's done, like Title IX, like the crime bill. These things show a pattern over time, not just old, but new, because he did this in the Obama administration. And so you're effectively trying to make one of his strengths of criminal justice reform into a weakness, and that is something where Trump can absolutely wail away at the Biden campaign on this. Now, the the Biden campaign can point to many other aspects of things that Trump has said in the past, but what they can't do is point to policy, actual things that Donald Trump has done that have a direct impact on people's lives, especially their rights in these kind of kangaroo courts at a university level and in the real court system when you're making things when you're scaling back some of the sentencing requirements that people have been affected by. So this is a way, I believe, for Trump to make a strength that Biden has into a weakness, and he can hit him in a way that's not direct on with the Tara Reid story, but really coming in and outflanking Biden on this story because he really doesn't have a defense on this. Now, it's obviously sort of a complicated attack. It's not as easy just saying, oh, Biden sexually assaulted her, and here's the testimony. That's obviously the far easier thing, and so I think you'll see on social media and the media, they will stick closer to that. But if you can make the connection on this secondary attack here, where you're pointing out not just that Biden is, well, he's, he's a hypocrite for getting a different standard than everyone else, but also that he doesn't want these standards applied. He wants these standards applied because he wants to roll back these changes that Trump has made in Title IX, that he's he's making the law regressive in ways that would actually harm people. And that gives you these bright differences between Biden and Trump that are something that Biden doesn't want to see in the campaign.
So that is a way I think this allegation can impact this campaign beyond just a a you know a really impactful story that the media likes covering because it hits all of their core things. So that's all I got on Joe Biden. After the break, we'll come back and then we'll jump into the Ahmad Arbery case. So the Ahmad Arbery case, if you hadn't heard, it was a situation where a black man was shot by three white men and died. And the reason that it became a viral sensation is because a video was released showing Arbery running down the road. There was a man driving in a truck in the back filming everything that was happening. He was one of the ones who was watching and part of, and chasing him down this road, while two other men, both armed, were trying to stop Arbery where he was and get him to talk and answer their questions. And then finally they have a confrontation, and they struggle and they shoot him, I believe it was three times, all in close proximity, and he died and bled out on the street. So this was, the video was released by the attorney for the white men involved here because he believed the video would clear his friends and his clients in this situation, which may be the single dumbest thing I've heard an attorney say this week. If your attorney ever says that, they are probably a bad lawyer and you need to get rid of them. But in any event, not only does the video not clear these people, it most clearly implicates them even more further than what they had already testified to happening. There is, beyond the video that was released, some additional footage that shows that Arbery was walking at the neighborhood that he was in. He walked, there, were construct, there was construction going on in one of the houses that was under construction. It was empty, and he walked in. It was nothing, what it looks like, just nothing but a wood frame and a roof. But anyway, he walked into that, and he looked around. He didn't steal anything. He didn't take anything. He just walked in and looked around, as people tend to do in neighborhoods that are in, under construction. And then he walked back and went down the road. And then that's when we, from what we know, that's when the video kicks in of him being confronted by these guys and shot for that happening. Now, some people have argued that him walking onto that property is a form of trespassing. Is that technically trespassing? Yes, it is. It is technically a form of trespassing. Is that enough for three non-police figures to try to stop you and then shoot you for doing that? No. No, it is not. These people were not homeowners. They didn't own that property themselves. They claimed that they were looking for people who were robbing the area and going into homes, but that they did not know that he'd even been on that property at that point. So this was not in their knowledge. They didn't know he had been there. They were just, they saw him, they profiled him, and they viewed him as a person that who could have done that and tried to stop him illegally. They did not have the capacity to stop and do what they did. And what makes this even worse is that one of the people involved in killing him is a former prosecutor of that state. So you have this being a person now adjacent to the political, I mean, the criminal justice system because he was a retired prosecutor. So those are the facts. Those are the people involved here. This is an awful situation, and the facts all point to the fact that this is a cold-blooded murder here. These people committed, at the very minimum, some form of manslaughter, where it's either voluntary or involuntary, and their gross negligence, in this case, antagonizing and trying to confront a person that they had no right to confront at gunpoint, ended up getting him 
killed. This was not a situation. This is a situation where if he was armed and he pulled a gun on them and shot them for what they were doing, he could have done so in self-defense based on what they did. That is how bad their conduct was because he actually had the capacity to defend himself if a gun, if he had one. That was how badly they acted in this situation because he had the right to try to stop them from pointing a gun at him. When they pointed it at him, he swatted away and grabbed at it, and that's how they shot him. That is not, they are not allowed to do that. He was acting in self-defense and they shot him. And so... They are trying to argue that they were policing this and trying to stop people from robbing and they did not and trying to make a citizen's arrest and they had nothing. There's no legal authority that I'm aware of. It could be different in that state, but if it is, it needs to be changed. That allows them to go into and shoot a person for doing this. So this should be ruled some form of manslaughter. And because a former prosecutor is involved here, the Department of Justice is stepping in, primarily because the state prosecutors that they're trying to get to take it, two of them had already, have already had to bow out because of conflicts of interest, because they either knew or had connections to this prosecutor because he has not been retired that long. So this is now going up to the Department of Justice. The state is trying to get the federal government to take it. I think it would be wise for the federal government to do that just because it would allow them to take it and free up all of these connections that exist to this prosecutor. But on the end point here, vigilante justice just cannot be tolerated like this. You cannot allow people to go around trying to enforce their version of the law and kill people in the process. That absolutely cannot be allowed to happen. If they believed he was doing something, they shouldn't have confronted him. They should have called the police. That was within their purview to do. If they believed somebody was in their neighborhood illegally, they could have called the police and told the police where this guy was. There is no there's just nothing here that allows them to go and track him down, chase him down, and try to figure out what he's doing and killing him. They have at no point the legal authority to do that. And you can't just call something like this an accident because they were the ones who were the antagonists. They were the ones who instigated all of this. They antagonized the situation, and then they killed him. So this is different from what you would see with a police shooting case, because these are all private citizens involved here, but this does involve a former prosecutor, so it gives you something who is adjacent to the political justice system, and if he is able to use his his you know his prior connections or anything like that to avoid being getting punished for what happens here, it is a black mark on the criminal justice system. That's why I do think it's a smart to have the Department of Justice step in here to fix things and to get this straightened out because you have to bring justice to this situation to prevent other situations like it. You do not want people thinking that they can go around in these types of settings and force their form of justice. If you think you need that, you should call the police and get them to come in. That way everyone's lives and their rights are preserved because these people did not have the right to do that. So this this is something that it just it has to be fixed because if you don't fix it, it harms the rule of law and you need the legitimacy of the criminal justice system to be fixed in these types of situations. And in a way, this is similar to the Botham Gene case. I believe it was either last year or two years ago where a, a, an off-duty police officer went into someone else's house. She thought it was her own. That's what she claimed and ended up killing a person who was there. 
and tried to hide behind the badge in that case and claimed that she just she was acting in self-defense because somebody was in her apartment that wasn't hers. She ended up going to prison for that. That was a good outcome in that case. And you need a similar outcome here where these people get punished. This is worse than the Botham Jean case in, in all actuality because they tracked him down. This wasn't an accidental situation. They tracked him down and killed him. And so this absolutely cannot be allowed to sit. And it's a shame, even as it is, that it took this long for any action to take place. It wouldn't shock me if you see an investigation into the prosecutor's office to to get them to see why it took them so long to act as it did. So I fully expect the Department of Justice to step in here and to prosecute to the fullest extent you're probably looking at something along the lines of manslaughter. I don't think they're going to get premeditated unless you get some other kind of evidence to come out to show that they were clearly looking to kill him. That doesn't really make sense just based on the video and what we know of the situation. So you're, you're looking at some kind of manslaughter. But we'll see what happens. It's just it's a, one of these situations where, you know, it's like... Um, I believe it was Flandreau Castile, I believe was his name. The man up in, I believe it was Minneapolis, who was shot for carrying effectively. He told the police officer that he was carrying a gun on him legally, and he ended up getting shot, and you had the Botham Jean case. There's just, there's a string of these types of cases with similar types of facts where someone ends up dead in a situation where they should not have died. And this was one of them. And you, we have to fix our society so these types of events do not happen, and people don't have to live in fear of doing basic things and dying from doing basic things. Because I've, you know, I know plenty of people who have walked around a neighborhood under construction and walked into a new building that is being built when no workers are there. People do this all the time. That is not the crime here. The crime here is three people who overreacted and were trying to do something and be something that they should not have been. So. It's a sad situation. I hope they're able to get justice. Keep watching in the weeks and months to come because I'm sure this will be a case that stays at the forefront of the news. When we get back, we'll get into the coronavirus and all the latest updates there. What we're doing right now as a country on the coronavirus front is simply astounding. People are going to write books years from now just about what we've done on an economic level, to deal with this virus. Now, what the economic ravage that we're going through, where you have all the job losses, that is also historic. But how we are retooling the entirety of both our healthcare and economic system to directly confront this virus in the short amount of time that we're doing it is utterly astounding. We started out very, very slow. I mean, just without a question, just beyond slow. And we lost pretty much two months there between, you know, you have January when you start learning about it, but really February and then most of March where we were did not have a solid response at all. And especially on the testing front. But we have responded with a vengeance. The testing number turnaround alone is a miracle and it keeps getting bigger. So here's the scope. We as I checked the COVID tracking project as I got on air, and we have right now, really it's 8.9 million, but we're right at the 9 million. So we have 9 million tests that have been run right now. And between, if you count only between April 1st and May 1st, between that time, we started the month with 1.1 million tests run overall. 
and we ended the month at 6.5 million tests run. So in one month, we tested 5.4 million people. Now, there's probably some overlap there where people are getting tested more than once, but even with that, that is an astounding number of people we have tested for a new disease that we only recently learned about. And if you break that down even further, and you look from the first of this month, so the first of May to May 10th, which is the end of day, Sunday, you you go from 6.5 million to 9 million. So in that 10-day span, we've tested 2.5 million people, so in a week and a half. So that is an astounding turnaround. We are testing somewhere in the vicinity of around 300,000 people a day, and I thought to have a really good, and I do mean a really good response here, that we needed to test at least around 250,000 people, and we are eclipsing that mark pretty easily. We haven't dropped below that in a figure in a while, and for, there was about a two or three week period there where everyone thought that we had plateaued at around 150,000 tests a day, and we've almost doubled that now. The numbers fluctuate on a day-to-day basis, but we're, we've basically doubled that and are now hitting 300,000. So that is an astounding turnaround. With those cases, you have 1.3 million people who have tested positive, and as we hit end of day Sunday, there are 74,000 deaths. That means t- on Monday, Monday or Tuesday, you're going to see us cross the 75,000 mark on death, which is awful in and of itself, and it is over the lowest end estimates of the models that were saying 60 to 70,000 midpoint last month. So we're over those estimates, but we are still under the worst case scenario that was 100 to 250,000 before. So when you add that in with us testing around 300,000 people a day, that is an astounding turnaround that we've made, and we seem to be improving those numbers. And we're seeing that our testing is increasing, it's getting faster, and if you want to have a full economic reopening, we have to get this testing going out in mass where anyone can get a test whenever they wanted, and you can test people multiple times a week if you have to. So... We must get, we must leave the people who test positive and then immediately quarantine them. That is part of the reopening process because you have to have widespread testing if you're going to do that and then immediately get the people who test positive into a quarantine situation. We simply cannot be South Korea, Hong Kong, or New Zealand, or any of these other island type nations or cities. The United States is simply larger than all these places, has a more diverse population, and just has more people to deal with. And so you can't expect you can't expect a place like the United States to have the ability to test and then trace where all the contacts have been with everyone. We can try our best, and we are doing that, but we likely won't get there. So the only way that we can really do this effectively is widespread testing, and it's something that I've hit on. I've just been hitting it with a hammer nonstop almost since this thing broke because the only way for us to deal with this is to have widespread testing and immediately try to quarantine anybody who tests positive and keep them out of the healthy population. So that's where we are on the top line numbers. They're a lot better than they were before, and they continue to improve. We have a lot more work that we need to do, but if you're wanting to reopen, 
we are effectively going to have to brute force this thing by testing everyone at a very high rate. Now, there's been some reports, and I don't know where they've come from, that we had to test something like 30 to 40 million people a day. I have no idea absolutely no idea where that's coming from because that seems actually just physically impossible. We are doing really good right here to do 300,000 and we've tested all, we're, I mean at some point this week we're going to hit the 10 million mark of people who we have tested which is just an astounding figure when you look at where we were at the beginning of March. So this is a very good set of developments on the top line front. If you want to reopen we are headed in the right direction and I think the thing is, the more you test and the more you're able to prove where the virus is and where it is not, the more you're going to convince people that it is safer to go to some places than it is to others. And if you can do that, it gives me people more information. Because you have to remember, when we were working towards bending the curve, one of the reasons we did that, first of all, to you know not overwhelm the healthcare system and to give our healthcare system enough time to get testing up to speed and to figure out what was happening. But the other reason that we had to do that is because we actually had no idea where the outbreaks were in the country. We didn't know what we knew. We could look at hospitalization numbers and figure out, well, these six cities are experiencing higher hospitalization as a result of COVID. And, you know, you saw hotspots like New York. But even with that, you still didn't know how many people were dealing with the virus overall. So the more you test, the more you find. And that allows you to figure out where your hotspots are and respond accordingly. And if you're not in a hotspot, you, all you have to do is remain safe, obey basic social distancing measures, wash your hands, those sorts of things, and you should be fine. So that's where we are on that front. And the more we do that, the better off we will be. And there's been sort of this, the reason I keep sort of bringing up this testing thing is because... The, way, the place where quarantine sits right now is that people have kind of moved the goalposts on it where they're trying to say that we're going to quarantine until either we get to a, we get to a vaccine or we defeat the virus. That is not what quarantine is used for, and that is, that is an impossible task to ask. You cannot ask people to quarantine until either the virus completely vanishes or a vaccine is here. We are likely at the earliest at the absolute earliest that we could have a vaccine ready and widespread use would be the end of the year. And that's that's if we're able to hit one. And you have to remember, we have never developed a vaccine for any coronavirus. It has never happened. Now, I think there's some explanations for that because you can look at situations where in prior, like with the SARS epidemic and other similar coronaviruses, we just didn't have a financial incentive to develop one. It just kind of disappeared on its own after a little while. So we didn't have an incentive to develop a virus vaccine that just disappeared by itself. Right now, we have a need for one, so I think we will end up developing one. The question for it is just how long the immunity that you have for it will last at the end. And we don't know the answer to that question either. There is some early evidence that even people who are asymptomatic can develop immunity to the coronavirus, which is good because that means that everyone is developing some level of immunity to this thing. So even if you're asymptomatic, if they recover from it, they have antibodies and it allows for a sort of herd immunity to start taking over after a while because it's harder for the virus to spread in people who have the antibodies. So that's that's sort of the broad overview. I, we are trending in the right direction. I know everyone looks at the higher number of cases that are there, but 
when you compare the higher number of cases with the overall positivity rate, the the number of new cases that are coming in versus the amount of testing that we're doing is dropping. So the percentage of people who have it after they get a test is much lower than it has been in the past. And that is a very good place to be in this situation. So, like I said, if you're if you're looking at the models for this, we're at around 75,000 deaths right now, just short of that. That is above the high end that I was quoting for a while of 60 to 70,000, which is where the models had readjusted. Right now, we're back in the 75 to 100,000 death range, which is still below the 100 to 250,000 deaths. What we're what the models are having to adjust to now is that it appears that peak for the entire country was on April 15th or 16th. That was when the most deaths that we had happened. But what has happened since then is that as this thing has dropped, it has not dropped fast. So the death rate has been sort of a plateau here near the all-time high. We're not at that all-time high, but we are near it. So we're still at the all-time high. We were like around 200 2,500 deaths in one day, and we're still hovering around the 2,000 deaths a day scenario, and it is spreading across the country. So that is where we are. It is dropping, but dropping very slow. And so what we ideally would want is for the death rate to finally fall down and begin to get smaller, obviously. But that also means if that's happening, that the lethality of the virus is dropping, which would also be good. That means you only have milder cases hitting the system, which are easier for the healthcare system to deal with. So we're at the, we're still below the 100,000 mark. It is more likely now that we're going to hit that, even though it will take, even if you have 2,000 people dying a day, that would still take a little you know, a good chunk of time to get there in the time of this virus, but we're still within that range. So if we still hit on the low end of that, of either below or around the 100,000 mark, that is still considered a victory, especially when you consider how far we've come with this thing. That is a successful outcome when you're able to beat estimates. 100,000 people, I get, is a lot of people, but have you been able to react and get that down to the low end, you have done, you've taken some good policies along the way to get it there. So that's where we are on the model front and through the top line numbers. We're trending in the right directions. The deaths are more than what we expected a few weeks ago, but they are still, it's still within a good range. I know that's strange to say when you're talking about this, but when you're trying to get a good outcome and to beat estimates, this is right now a better outcome than what we would have expected just two or three months ago. So that means if you're looking at the economy, we do need to open, reopen, and so we're trending in the right direction, but we do need to reopen now just because of all the people who aren't employed. And it won't be pretty when we do reopen, but when you've got over 20 million people who have lost their jobs just in the past month, you know, you've got to get those people eventually back to work, especially since Congress has already said they're not going to cut any more individual checks. Well, that that one $1,200 check, that's great, you know, if you have a job, but if you don't have one and you're sitting here without anything and all you're getting is that check plus unemployment, you've got to go back to work soon or you're going to have to, you're going to be forced to live on unemployment. And for some people, their expenses may be low enough that they can do that. But if you're not, you're going to need to get back to work and you need things to reopen. So 
the way things are incentivized, people have to go back to work just to survive. You can't expect people to stay home because Congress has not made the incentive strong enough for people to stay at home. So the economic outcome of this will be pretty because there's just not a ton of people going out shopping and keeping demand up, but it should work back over over the course of this month. I just think you're going to see by the end of the month, all 50 states are going to talk about reopening just because out of it's just a straight up necessity and need because you can't expect people to stay out of the economic system for this long. When you're looking at those numbers of the 20 plus, we're like 21, 22 million people overall who are unemployed right now, that is the worst number since the Great Depression. There's just no way around that. That is the worst number we've ever seen. The caveat to that that I would add is that of those numbers, only around 1.5 million have been true job losses. That means people who were straight up laid off and do not have a job now. That is much smaller than I would have expected in that number. And that means the rest of those people are either furloughed or they're working part-time work for economic reasons, which means we should be able to get them back into some kind of a full-time employment situation if furloughed stuff starts coming back. And that should be the goal. If you do that, then you'll see the job numbers snap back with with just a quickness where people will be reporting that they're back employed. Now, whether or not their company can survive that with all this, all the demand sapped out of the system, I don't know, and neither does anybody else, but that is where we're headed. You're likely going to see a situation where we're going to, all these job losses that we've seen, at some point in the next, I would say, three months, you're going to see that snap back where you're going to see the greatest job gains that we've ever seen. We're talking one to... 5 million people regaining their jobs in the span of a month, which is astounding in and of itself. And it'll be interesting to see how that has an impact on the economy overall. I don't know how that's going to impact it. I don't even know how you can absorb that many people doing all this. But it is fascinating to watch as a as a system overall. But we do need to restart things and get the furloughed people back because they're not going to get that check. And... But with that, it's not as bad as it could be because when you're looking at all these things and looking at people who are just straight up lost their jobs versus the people who are just furloughed, it looks better if you focus on the fact that these people are furloughed or they have a job for part-time reasons and you can get those people back to work. So that is the good news in there. There is a signal that these people can get jobs on the backside of this. And that signals that at some point you're going to see a bounce back that's going to happen. Now, part of all this that's been happening, one thing that's just truly annoyed me in all this that I've seen from national journalists, if they as they, they've started pushing this narrative of the quote unquote hashtag Trump depression. So they're blaming these depression style numbers on Donald Trump. Now I get it. It's happening on his watch. But we purposely did this as a country. To call this the Trump Depression misses what happens here. We purposely shut down a third of the entire economy in order to defeat a virus that is killing people and making hundreds of thousands of people sick and sending people to the hospital. So we said in order to beat this virus, we had to shut the economy down. That means people are going to be furloughed, they're going to lose their jobs, but it also means we're going to put ourselves in a position to defeat this virus. So that is not a true depression. It is not a 
Trump depression. That is the media spinning up a narrative here to blame something on a president that we knew was going to happen. This was a planned idea to come in and slow down the economy just enough so that we could get a hold of this virus and then restart things. So this is not a natural occurrence. And if you're trying to spin that narrative, you are building something that is untrue. And so Every time I see this from a journalist that's pushing this, and it, it is journalists, you, you mostly see it from activists who are pushing it on social media, but you're also seeing this from journalists who are saying the same thing, that this is the spin they're going to go with, because at every step of the way, it has to be Trump's fault somehow, even though this was the plan. We knew this was coming. We knew these jobs numbers were coming. And what we also know is that when these furloughed employees start going back, and that's going to be you know, around, let's say, 16 to 18 million people, that at some point these job numbers are going to read <laughs> ridiculously. 15 to 20 million people are going to all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, we have a job again. And that means there's going to be job gains in the millions of people. And if that happens, what are you going to say then? Are you going to call that the Trump Depression too? So this is just a momentary narrative that the national media is trying to push that makes utterly no sense when you point it when you put it up to any form of reason so that i mean it's irritating to see and i could go on a rant on that for probably the next 30 minutes just because it is so irritating but the last point that i wanted to make on this virus we're heading out is that i know everybody is sharing the youtube video called plandemic where there's this grand conspiracy theory about you know, Anthony Fauci and the medication and, and everything that goes with that. And there's just no truth to this video. This was made by cranks, and they have made things like this in the past on other topics, and they were wrong then, they're wrong now. Everything they pushed forward has been discredited multiple times over. There is no need to explain what's happening here in the form of a conspiracy theory because if this if anything when that in that video was true this is what you would see happen you would see china russia iran and any of our other enemies use that as a means of attacking us and trying to get either cures or solutions out of us by using that evidence against us. And they're not doing that. In fact, this week Reuters reported that Iran was busy attacking both Gilead and other, um, and we, it's not just them, we, we know other countries like China have attacked our health facilities and other, and other uh, institutions trying to steal information from us. And so they don't believe a word of this. They believe we have the capacity to build a solution to this, and they're trying to steal it from us. That is the real situation. So if any of these conspiracy theories were true, and again, you can't prove any of these because that's just people saying that they're asking questions, but if it was, you would see our enemies using that against us, and they're not. And in fact, usually what they're doing is they're trying to start up these conspiracy theories and give them they're trying to amplify them in order to sow discord and prevent the United States from having a solid response to this virus and also bring the economy back online because these countries want to see America fail at whatever cost. And so they are willing to help amplify some of these conspiracy videos. And it's not going to shock me on the backside of this is if you see some of these countries behind some of this or at least trying to amplify it further because they are trying to do everything that they can to not just get past this virus, but also trip up countries like the United States of America. They believe that they're in a better opposition if America is failing at this. 
So the government, the U.S. government, is just not competent enough to run a conspiracy at that kind of level. It just isn't. You can look at any phase of it, and it has not been competent at all to run any of this. So the WHO is the only true conspiracy theory that we've had that's been true because what they've done is repeat whatever China has told them to say. We know the WHO is a puppet for China, and it's so obvious, that's why we know it's an open conspiracy. That's what, when you look for a conspiracy theory, that's what one, where one exists, we know it exists, and we know how it works. That's how one of those works, not how what you're seeing in some of these videos. So you can ignore those types of videos. They're not worth your time. Keep focusing on the main things of social distancing and helping get the country past this because we've got to reopen the, gov- the, the economy and get everyone back on their feet. So that's all I've got for this week's show. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get that next issue in your email inbox. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'll see you guys in the next episode.